It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to the Jason in the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and uh, this week we're going to walk you through some highlights and thoughts on the news. And boy, this week, as much as anything, it is happening at rapid fire. We're going to highlight the stupid because there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. And then we're going to phone not just one, but two of our friends, Sean Duffy and Rachel Campos Duffy. Gosh, if you get to know these people, some of the nicest people on on the planet, uh, served in Congress with uh, Sean and both are are Fox News contributors. Rachel's obviously a rising star uh, co-hosting the uh, Fox and Friends on the weekend, and you're going to hear and see a lot more of both of them and get to know them a little bit better. I look forward to give them a call because a fascinating family, uh, not only have nine kids, uh, served in Congress. Sean was a former prosecutor. They met on the real world. At least that's in part the story, the lure. We're going to find out about what brought them together and um, just uh, an amazing, amazing family. But we got to get right into the news because what's going on in this nation right now, it will affect our generations. And I know sometimes that comes across as trite and, you know, uh, sure, it's just hyperbole and whatnot. But the numbers that we're looking at today in what the Democrats want to spend now, at the recording of this podcast, we don't know what the ultimate number is going to be, but we know it's going to be stunning. And I want to put it in perspective. When I when I first ran for the Congress in 2008, I was part of the cycle that elected uh, Barack Obama. I won. He won uh, two totally different races, obviously. But I was complaining at the time that the national debt was eight to nine trillion dollars. And remember, if you spend a million dollars a day every day, it takes nearly 3,000 years to get to 1 trillion, okay? So uh, according to the New York Post in an article on September 28th, uh, the quote from the New York Post, if his, being Joe Biden, uh, Kamala Harris, if his entire agenda is enacted, the national debt held by the public, which is just under 17 trillion before the pandemic, would reach 44 trillion 10 years from now 44 trillion now at some point this all catches up with you folks you can't be 44 trillion dollars in debt who's massive inflation i think we're about to see uh i just uh recently saw on fox business with Stuart varney i saw that uh year over year home prices we're up 25%. Now, some of those were even higher out in the Western United States. There's certainly parts of where I live that it was more than that. But 25%, how is a new homeowner supposed to enter the market and live the American dream that way? The definition of inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. And when you have incentives to people to not work, and consequently they're not working, You have a labor shortage, which is coupled with massive government spending. More than 25% of our gross domestic product, it's estimated, 
will be spent by the federal government. Think about that. One out of every $4 spent in this country is spent by the federal government. Now, again, going back to New York Post, it's, and I'm quoting them, add it all up and congressional Democrats are set to commit $8 trillion in new spending over the decade, of which $6 trillion would be borrowed. That is quadruple the net cost of the 2017 tax cuts. And let me just stop there. When Donald Trump and the Republicans were able to cut taxes, guess what happened to revenue of the, with the Treasury? Despite what the Democrats will tell you, revenue to the Treasury increased because of stimulated economic activity. So to say we'll raise taxes does not necessarily mean that raises revenue to the Treasury. And to say that it cut taxes does not necessarily mean that, oh, there's going to be less revenue to the Treasury. To the contrary, if you use dynamic scoring, you start to understand that when the American people are allowed to have more money in their own wallets. Guess what happens? They do more things. And Democrats keep saying, oh, they're going to pay their fair share. You're going to pay their fair share. Joe Biden was even quoted as saying there are trillionaires out there that would have to pay their fair shares. As best I can tell, there are no trillionaires. He made that up. And it is an outright lie, Mr. President, to just, I mean, it is an outright lie to say that this thing is paid for. How the President of the United States goes out there and says, oh, it's all paid for. Are you kidding me? It's not even close. Why do we think we've been spending and having annual deficits for so long? When you spend more year over year, that's a deficit. The accumulation of those annual deficits is the national debt. This is what happens when you have somebody like Joe Biden, who's been in office for close to 50 years, totally loses perspective. Here again from the Washington, or from the New York Post, quote, it would be enough money, what the Democrats are planning to spend, to eliminate the employee side of the payroll tax or deposit $60,000 into each family's bank account. Instead, it will be spent on a grab bag of long-standing liberal policies. See, that's what you're going to get, America. You're going to get more regulators, more government, more spending. And it is just an outright fraud to suggest, oh, we're going to have free this, and it'll be free that, and free this. Sorry, folks. Uh, that ain't the way that the, the world works. And Democrats... I just driving us. Hey, look, I, I was upset with the Republicans. I thought they lost control of the, the mantle of fiscal discipline. I'm all for cutting taxes, but we should also cut spending. And that's my criticism of the, of the Republicans. But this type of spending by the trillions and then to go out and tell the American people it's paid for is just an outright lie. All right, let's transition to the stupid because you know what? There's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. All right, I'm going to uh, ABC News on September 15th, and I'm calling a little BS on this one. I, I'm just not buying it. Reputable news organization, but this article that appeared, I'm sorry, I, I, I just don't, I just don't believe what they actually uh, wrote in this article. It, it just, I just, I can't imagine that it's actually true. And and let me walk you through it. 
This is an article about, it, it says, teens turn to COVID-19 vaccine advocacy as most state laws prohibit minors from being vaccinated. The vaccination rate among adolescents is growing faster than any other age groups. Well, okay, so let's let's break this down, folks. Um, maybe there's a few teens out there advocating COVID-19 vaccines. Maybe I, I'm sure you looked hard enough. You can find a teenager who's out there doing this. But here's how the article starts. There is a high school sophomore from Texas who wakes up at 6 a.m. on the weekends when she knows her parents are asleep so she can secretly and quietly make calls as an ambassador for a teen pro-vaccine group fighting off vaccine misinformation. Okay, so let's break that down. Teenager waking up at 6 a.m. That's highly doubtful. Happens. I'm sure it does. But calling her friends? Who's answering the phone at 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning to hear from their girlfriend or friend about vaccine advocacy? Now, maybe you got one or two best friends who's going to answer that call. But don't tell me that they're sitting there dialing everybody, letting everybody know. And the second thing that I find entirely stupid is if you're getting your medical information from a 14-year-old, who has no medical training, no idea about your medical background, you got to re-examine your life, folks, because you got medical professionals who go through, you know, a decade of training plus and have all kinds of experience and can read and understand and then compare that to your personal profile to help you make your personal decision. I don't think you should listen to some pundit who's not a doctor on television make this decision. And I certainly don't believe that a 15-year-old should call you up. And if you know it, if at this point you don't know that there's a COVID problem and that there's a vaccine that may help you, and suddenly you're like, oh, you know, that 15-year-old, hey, mom, dad, I really got to go out and get my vaccine shot. And for ABC News to say, quote, the vaccination rate among adolescents is growing faster than other age groups, end quote, well, they just got cleared, part of them, not all of them, part cleared to actually have the vaccination. So they were at zero before. Suddenly it gets cleared to do it. And some people are going out and getting vaccinations. So they're going to go from zero to something. Of course, that's going to be the fastest growing rate. That is absurd to suggest that this. Let me read the rest of this. Um, it says, quote, the reason for all the cloak and dagger secrecy, the 15-year-old who asked to be called Rain, not her real name, is the daughter of QAnon followers who hold strident views against mask wearing, social distancing, and the coronavirus vaccine. I'm sorry. I don't buy that. I, I, I just don't buy it. I do not believe that not only is this story so great, but she's also secretly the daughter of a QAnon supporter. And she calls her friends and dials up the people at the high school at 6 a.m. on Saturday to talk about vaccines. I, I'm sorry, ABC News. I'm just not buying it. And for that, I think that's bringing on the stupid. You're listening to Jason in the house. We'll be back right after this. 
Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. All right. Time to bring on some of our friends. These people are great. You're going to love them. They are just full of energy. And so I'm looking forward to this. Uh, Let's call Sean Duffy and his wife, Rachel Campos Duffy. Hello? Hey, this is Jason Chaffetz. How are you? Hi, Jason. How are you? It's Rachel. Hey, Jason. Sean Duffy here, too. Oh, Rachel and Sean, thank you so much for joining us. I really do appreciate it. You are some of my favorite people. You know, I got to, I got to know Sean uh, when he got elected. You, you weren't supposed to get elected, Sean. Like, you came out of nowhere, this log-rolling, real-world guy, and won this election up in Wisconsin. Um, I mean, did you ever think you were actually going to be in Congress? Listen, I wasn't. I was. I ran against a 42-year incumbent. Everyone said I should lose this race, and I caught the wave of 2010. And uh, frankly, I never let myself believe that I would win, Jason, uh, until about an hour before they called the election for me. I couldn't believe that I'd have the honor of serving in the Congress um, because it was such a far reach and in such a tough race. So, yeah, I got to serve. I got to serve what six years with you before you left, or eight years with you before you left, and then uh, I left a couple years ago, almost to the date today. Yeah, and and then uh, along the way, we got to meet Rachel and, and your family. You got uh, nine kids, right? We we didn't when we started. <laughs> Only six. <laughs> Only six. We well, you were halfway there. Uh, you were yeah. halfway there. You got a few more to go. So um, I, I say that with a big smile because it is amazing. You know what's amazing about your family? Um, like every time I've seen him do a, a live shot or even in person, like the few times we like seen him up in Congress and that sort of thing, they're all well behaved. How do how in the world do you do that? Is that a big bull whip bribery. that you're carrying, or how do you do that? It's bribery. It's like okay, if you guys do this, we'll go to Dairy Queen after and stuff like that. <laughs> or yeah. Barbies and I've used Barbies and lip gloss as bribery tools. I'm not above any bribery when it comes to my kids in public, and some most of the time it works, but there are times when it failed. I'll well, you, it still works with me. I mean, sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll make them rewatch a clip where one of them was pouting and say, see how bad you looked? You got to smile. right?" So, so you actually take game film and make them watch the game film afterwards, right? We do some instant replay. Or like, you know, for commercials, you'll appreciate this. There's always one kid. I mean, it's too many people. That's the problem with the big family is like. Not everybody is happy at the same time. There's always one or two who are in a bad mood, no matter if you're on some fabulous vacation or doing a shooting a commercial or, or just a regular dinner. Somebody's always not on board with everybody else. I mean, that's just the nature of having a big family. And so, you know, when we have to shoot commercials, there's always one who's in a bad mood or tired and doesn't want to do it or is in that age bracket where they're afraid, like, you know, oh, this is so cheesy, you know, whatever. And we're always like, just remember, 
Your friends are going to watch this. There's going to be millions of dollars of ads behind this. So you political put commercials your best now, right? <laughs> well, political commercials and right and and you, as you know, Jason, when you do political commercials, that they, they they take a long time. It's like all day for a couple yeah. of days. You shoot these things, and and the kids participate. And yeah, there's a lot of bribery going on as we go through the uh, the, the the political commercial shoot. Oh, that's that's great. Okay, so I want to kind of step back a little bit and uh, understand, uh, you know, kind of where you both came from and then how you came together. So let let's start with Rachel because Rachel's always our favorite. No, no offense, Sean, but and way more interesting. Yeah, tell us about growing up. Like, where did you grow up and and why? Yeah, I mean, you're a fairly conservative person here. So what was it about growing up that kind of made you? a little bit more conservative than a little bit more liberal. Um, as you know, Jason, I uh, grew up in Arizona, but I grew up in a military family. And so um, I grew up overseas mostly and in all kinds of countries, Spain, England, Turkey, um, Peru. Uh, so I was just kind of all over. And but my parents are are fairly conservative. I, I think my dad, my dad came from a Democrat union family, but he's Catholic. And I think, you know, he, he cast his first vote for Ronald Reagan in the eighties because he was in the military and Ronald Reagan promised to rebuild the military after, you know, Jimmy Carter just demoralized the whole country in the same way that Joe Biden is doing it right now. And so he cast his first vote for Reagan really more because he was a military guy hoping to rebuild the military morale. And then when he did, he's sort of like, wait a minute. Like the, he just kind of became more aware. He's like, they're pro-life, they're this. And he realized that he was just voting Republican because he was Mexican American and from a union copper town in Arizona, but that really the values of the party were no longer the JFK party, right. That he thought he was part of. And so that was a, political transformation for him my mom is a native of spain my dad met her when he was overseas and you know her family encountered a lot of persecution from her family history is one of communist persecution um in spain and so she was already like very easily on board with the anti-communist message from ronald reagan and she understood exactly what Marxism and communism could do and how it destroyed religious liberty and destroyed families and economies. And so she was already on board. And I think that combination, plus being a military brat, where, you know, you, that love of country is sort of just inbred in you. And when you live abroad, you even feel that more. So, so I think all of those factors played into it. And I do think that I have a, my deep love of America and appreciation for it is enhanced by the fact that I lived in countries that were third world countries, you know, countries that were military dictatorships, as it was in Turkey when I was there. I don't take our freedoms and our prosperity for granted, I think, in large part because of that. Yeah, I, I, you know, when I traveled overseas as a young teenager, I, it didn't take very long for me to understand that uh, the United States of America was a whole lot better than anybody else in the world. And uh, and it, it just gives you sort of this world perspective. But I mean, growing up, did you like have a job? Did your parents make you do certain things? I mean, how many kids in your family? So only four. I know if you know the Duffy, Sean is a 10th of 11. So I thought I was a big family until I met the Duffies. Um, so I, 
I, you know, look, my brothers always had paper routes. Um, they worked. My brother worked at Burger King. I was a babysitter. So I, every Friday night, um, I was on lockdown. My parents were super strict, so I could never do all the fun stuff. You know, everybody else did, even though I was a cheerleader right after the game, they were there to pick me up. I wasn't allowed to go party with all the other kids. So, um, I did a lot of babysitting and I learned to make money and I, you know, pretty much from the age of 15 on, I was buying my own clothes. I was not like, you know, we weren't poor. We were, you know, middle-class family. Um, but, but my parents, you know, wanted us to learn how to work and we did. And I worked my way through college. Um, nobody paid for my college. I had to do that. And, um, I think that that's a good thing. And I think it's given me a good, a good work ethic, um, so I, I think I think all those things play in part. But I think also having a mom who's an immigrant, um, that kind of, um, again, appreciation for America, that kind of work ethic. My parents, my, my dad grew up poor um, and, you know, has been working since he was a little boy. He was a shoeshine boy when he was, you know, six years old um, in his family. By the way, he was one of 15. And again, I think that, you know, seeing my dad work so hard um, you know, taking second jobs sometimes while he was in the military, working at night at, you know, a Chinese restaurant, um, washing dishes to, you know, keep his family going. So I just grew up with really hardworking people and, um, and, and an immigrant sort of upbringing through, through my mom and an appreciation for the American dream. And so when a lot of the Marxist messages came my way in college, I just wasn't buying it. It just was not the America I knew and understood. And I knew that it was BS. And so I was a college Republican and that was not an easy thing to do, you know, in college as a Hispanic, where there was a lot of pressure to join, you know, Mecha and, you know, sort of, it was sort of the beginning of this um, in the early nineties, the beginning of all the PC and identity politics. And I just, I just resisted it. I didn't feel it spoke to me. It seemed really insincere and false and I just never fell for it. So, you got a conservative upbringing, um, conservative family. Couldn't even, you know, you're babysitting instead of going out doing whatever, you know, you might be doing. How in the world did you then transition when there was this, uh, this uh, reality television show and you're like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll go do that. Yeah, I mean, I was still fun. You know, I still like to have fun in college and still doing stuff. I watched MTV. You can remember, you know. Sean, Jason, back in the early 90s, I mean, that was where youth culture was. It was MTV. Um, everyone watched MTV. There weren't like 20,000 other networks you could watch. Um, if you wanted to watch music videos and be part of American youth culture, MTV was a big part of that. And so I watched MTV just like everybody else. I caught a few episodes of this weird reality show that was going on. I wasn't a big super fan or anything, but I had seen it, you know, just like most other people. And then I saw an ad on TV that they were going to, um, you know, have auditions for the third season. And I just I applied. I sent a video in. I thought, yeah, why not? Um, I had no idea of the competition. I later learned like forty five thousand other people applied. <laughs> and they picked seven. Um, but at the time, I just thought, yeah, why not? I mean, I'm about to graduate. I have this period of time in between now and grad school this will be perfect. And so lo and behold, I applied, sent video. There was a series of auditions, um, you know, 
weird ways to audition back then because there was no there was no internet and zoom and all that so you had to record yourself on a big video tape and send it in and weird stuff like that that young people probably don't understand um but lo and behold i ended up on the show and yeah. um it turned out to be pretty groundbreaking um show and 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 that ep- that season in particular was the season that grappled with a lot of political issues and i think that's why i was cast and i give mtv credit for for casting me in that show um to take a conservative hispanic woman and um and and again i i just said whatever i wanted it wasn't scripted um it was edited but i would say it was pretty fairly edited no good good all right so sean you're growing up a uh, little bit different household. You weren't traveling the whole world, and you were ten out of eleven kids. Is that right? Yeah. So I was. The, yeah, I was a tenth of eleven, Jason. So I, I think my parents went through the uh, the strict parenting with the older kids, and we got a little lighter parenting as younger kids <laughs> of the house. And I, so I always grew up in a. It was a relatively you know conservative uh, home. We were Catholic. We had a lot of kids. But politics really weren't a big part of our our daily life. Like I think in Rachel's house, they talked politics a lot. We didn't. But I always thought of myself as a Republican and always voted conservative, except in 1992, I voted for Ross Perot and, and helped elect Bill Clinton. So I, I apologize for that. Um, maybe I had a little libertarian streak in me. And I, I, to be honest, I didn't I wasn't really politically involved or engaged. Um, I, you know, I, I went out and I had friends and and drank beer and whatever. And when Rachel and I got married, she loved politics. And I just we just started I started following politics with her and absolutely fell in love um, with politics, but also because I saw what an impact it had on this new little family that we had started. We had a new baby and for the first time I'm, I'm kind of making money and I'm paying taxes. And, um, that was, that was kind of my foray into politics. And again, found this love that I never really knew that I had on how, how politics actually has a huge impact in our daily lives. And for me, I, I grew up doing lumberjack shows and uh, competitions and exhibitions. That's, if you don't know, that's again, ESPN six at four o'clock in the morning. If you watch, <laughs> it was I've seen that. It's sort of like, Free climbing, right? It's all yeah, I had this old time uh, lumberjacks. Yeah, I, I have this guy Todd uh, who went to school with who um, actually works for ESPN, and he he does some of the color, uh, some of the play by play on like you know world's strongest man, where some guys flipping tires yeah. over, and if you can see if you can go a hundred yards, and and then log rolling and stuff. Now, how in the world did you get into this? I mean, somebody had to have shown you that sport, right? So we we are like the you know the strongest man competitions where these like freak sports, right? <laughs> that people are like. I'll sit and have a beer and watch or a cup of coffee at four in the morning and watch, you know, these, these unique skills that people have on ESPN. So the way lumberjack sports worked is oftentimes these, these old time lumber camps, communities that were built on, you know, sawmill towns back at the turn of the last century um, would kind of keep that history alive. Much like in the West, you might have, you know, they still do rodeo shows and, you know, cowboy shows um, in towns out West. Oh, we, we do a lot this. of rodeos in Utah. Yeah. I mean, all summer, it's just one rodeo after another. And they're fun. The others. Those guys so, are amazing so we, athletes. Oh, they're, they're bull riding is like, 
crazy town. You ever been? If you ever, you don't realize how big those bulls are until you actually oh, yeah. stand by one. They're huge and full of muscle, and these little guys get on top and ride them. It's dangerous, and I mean, manly, and they're tough. And but so, 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 Jason, this was. Um, we, I came from a town that, you know, had a huge logging presence and they kept their, the sport alive, um, in the community from what they, what they, what their founding came from. And so you know, we had a, a, one of the largest lumberjack competitions in the country or in the world, actually in this small town where people from all over the world would congregate in Hayward, Wisconsin. Um, and this is the town you're from, right, Sean, where I'm Can't. from, right yeah. And so as I grew up, I, I in the summer, instead of taking swimming lessons or diving lessons or soccer lessons, I took log rolling lessons. I started when I was five and my summers were filled with log rolling and going to log rolling competitions. So what's uh, the like one summer. secret? What's the one thing you need to know about to be like the best log rolling kid on the block? So, well, just even to stand top of a log, it's, it's, it's pretty tough. So you have to actually look at where you're opponent's feet are that allows you to keep um your center of balance in the log and it's all about you know the center of balance it has to be you know on top of the log where if you're too far forward or too far back the log starts to spin and you're in the water so keeping center of balance on top of the <clears> log <throat> and figuring that out is key for log rolling i know all, all, everyone listening to your podcast and i'm like really this is really useful information for me <laughs> right well it is it is you, know, you see the parallel to politics it probably is there is actually there is actually in fact sean's comp- i think part of you know sean's secret sauce for winning in that first very unlikely election again he, he unseated the third most powerful guy in washington dc the chairman of appropriations who'd been in office longer than Sean and I had ever been alive. Um, and he was <laughs> very powerful and very mean and Sean beat him. And the reason, one of the reasons is he, he had these great ads of, you know, he had this guy dressed up as a politician on a log and Sean, you know, rolled him off. And um, there was this idea. And then he had a lot of chopping ads and, you know, taking the ax to Washington and, you know, changing things up there. And I, he, he really used um, his experience as a lumberjack to do that. By the way, all of our kids, Jason, in the summer go to log rolling school in his town in Hayward because we have a little um, place on the lake near his parents' um, place on the lake. We go up there every summer and the kids, instead of, you know, they take, they don't take swimming lessons, they take um, log rolling log lessons. lessons. Yeah, it really is a family sport. As I see those people shimmy up those telephone poles, I just think, yeah, everybody should be doing that. Everyone should be racing up and down (laughs) spar poles. But 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 also, but you look at politics is relating to people, right? And you you want someone who is going to reflect your value. You don't know what votes are going to come up, but you want someone to vote for you that shares your value, you value your perspective. And our country is so diverse um, with, you know, different parts of the country, you know, having been started doing different things, different industries. And for us, being in lumberjack sports, a lot of our communities in, in central and northern Wisconsin were founded on on logging. So when we did these ads at the start, people were like, huh, this is this is really cool. And this is really Wisconsin. And this is really us. And they really kind of punched through. And, you know, this and, and everyone listening to your podcast knows this in some of these election seasons, especially if you have a, a congressional race and a Senate race that are, are really 
tight. I mean, millions of dollars come in in ads. And when I ran in 2010, we had a Senate race. That's the one that Ron Johnson won for the first time. And and we had a governor's race where Governor Scott Walker ran for the first time and won. But there were so many ads on TV and people were just sick of ads. And we created ads on lumberjack sports that were, that were different and fun and were able to punch through the really negative environment that we all feel during, you know, September, October and the start of November, right? Yeah, it, it gets exhausting. You're listening to Jason in the house. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Sean and Rachel right after this. So let's go back a little bit. You got this uh, young family, but Sean, you, you went to law school, you were a prosecutor. Um, but then talk about the, the, you know, it takes a lot of gumption to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go after this incumbent who we know is, I don't know how many millions of dollars you probably had sitting in the bank and the ability to raise a lot of money. But when you and Rachel were kind of talking this through, what was the point you said, yeah, well, let's go for this? So as we talked it through, again, if you were to think back to, you know, 2009, uh, Barack Obama was just being sworn into office and Democrats had won everything. And they had had a supermajority in the Senate. They had the House. They had everything in Wisconsin. And it felt really bleak for Republicans at that time. And um, it was about the moment where my congressman at at the time uh, shepherded through the $800 billion stimulus bill of of 2009 I, I did it in 2009 in 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 june you know compared to today this is child's play right i mean we're spending trillions of dollars without a blink of an eye but back then 800 800 billion was a lot of money and i'm like you know i we, we very well may lose this race and everyone says i shouldn't run um but i want to hold him accountable i'm going to run a, a a darn good race and um I think a conservative message will will resonate. And I have a lot of political friends that are involved in politics and campaigns. And Rachel and I went and spoke to a lot of them and no one was willing to help me. Um, But I had one. I found one consultant who was a friend who said, I don't think you'll win. My best advice to you is not to run. But if you're going to run, I'll give you some free advice and help you out. And people don't understand how lonely campaigns can be. It was literally Sean and Rachel. We were the team. That's all right, we had. Right. I we, we were doing full-time family. I think <clears throat> at that point we had five kids. Our sixth was on the way. Um, I was a full-time DA and at night after work, I was driving. We have a big district, so I'm traveling, you know, two hours, three hours, four hours to different events and then driving myself back at home. People think congressmen, steak dinners and drivers drove myself everywhere. On the weekends, I was gone and it was a, an effort that the two of us put in, in until we got in for the first like six, eight months before I was able to hire someone to come on and start to help us out. Um, and it was, it was lonely. To it help him drive. Cause I was afraid he was going to kill himself on the road. I mean, he was yeah. just burning the candle at both ends. And I was just so nervous at the hours he was keeping and he was driving himself. I didn't care if we had a comms director. We didn't have that. We didn't have anyone helping us. All I begged for was that we could raise enough money so he could at least have or, or inspire some volunteer to, you know, drive him um, when when he had really late night um, uh, events. I mean, it, our district is like a, a third of the state. It's 26 counties. It's giant. Yeah, we I went through a very similar experience because I was in that 2008 cycle and going up against a 12-year incumbent Republican, and I had everybody endorse 
the incumbent uh, from President Bush to Senator Hatch to Senator Ben. I mean, if you were in politics, you endorsed the other guy. And I raised and spent less than a hundred thousand dollars to get this nomination, uh, you know, get through the primary there or get to the primary, I should say. And, um, we had i i never did have a paid person uh we were all volunteers i never actually got anybody on the staff because i never raised the money and then and then we won and we won big because i do think ultimately people figure out who who's going to best represent them and i know it's hard going up against an incumbent um but i also think people want good people to get in serve and then get out you know i i just i worry about the people that park themselves like joe biden for 50 years i just i think you lose the perspective and and as soon as you leave you get a whole new perspective back uh a hundred percent um i don't know this is just off the top of my head jason i don't know if you feel this way but in 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 congress I, i would um, I feel like there's this group think that, the, you know, the Republican conference and your, your fellow colleagues and we have to do this and we have to go here and we have to vote for that. Um, and Rachel, I was be at home going, listen, you guys are crazy. You're yeah. missing where the people are at. And yeah. you're, and I'd be like, well, no, we're doing it because this is the strategy. Once I'm out again and and I, I feel like I've become far more critical of, of what we used to do in the group think of the conference. Um, you, and, and Sean, you know fun. what? It's funny. I thought about that. What you just said last night. Um, I saw Chip Roy on Tucker and he was talking about the, the uh, military uh, funding that, that was just voted on and how it included uh, putting women, drafting women into the military. That was part of the dra- part of the part of the bill. And he, he named a few other things that he didn't like about the bill. But in any case, he named, he said, but, you know, this was a bipartisan bill, like 130 other Republicans voted for it. And I thought, you know, wow, I mean, that's hard to be friends with those people because you guys are all collegial. I don't think people understand how well you get along with each other, by the way, even with the other side. Um, that's one of the nice things about Congress. But it's hard to call other people out for doing the wrong thing. Um, and it's it's just interesting. But uh, but Jason, one of the great it was really hard for me to be in district and and, and away from Sean because I was like a single mom. But the upside of being a single mom with, you know, nine kids, eight, nine kids um, while he was in Congress is that I had the pulse on the people. And so when things went a little off, I was able I think to have conversations with Sean to go, hey, I know that they're pressuring you to do this, but I'm talking to people here and it's not feeling that way here. And there is something I mean, he lived in the district, but even just those those that time in D.C. can be can be you you realize what a bubble um, Congress is. And and there is a lot of, as Sean says, groupthink and there's a lot of collegial decisions that have to be made. Um, And sometimes it's good to make sure you're you're your family is at least in district and and you're still connected in that way yeah you know it's hard to go back and forth i was one of those office dwellers and and i think the hardest part and one of the biggest drivers of getting out of congress quite frankly is when you love your family and and you adore your kids it's just like and it's just hard to get home i mean you probably had a couple flights to get home you know at least we had a direct flight but you know, D.C. Salt Lake City is more than a four-hour flight, and then you got to drive home. And 
And, you know, when I became the chairman of the oversight committee, I found myself being home three or four days a month, if that. Sometimes it was less. Well, because then you're also, you know, you do your work in D.C., but then you come home and people want to see you at the Rotary Club and you're doing fairs. You got a parade. You got a dairy breakfast in Wisconsin. I mean, you go, you're going all the time. And and listen, it's an honor to do it. It's it's really great work. But you're right that your family, people don't understand the, the, the strain on a family. Because it, it takes a lot of time to um, to do the job and to do it well. And not everyone does it well, but like like you, you, you put the time in and especially being a, a chairman of at a, at a time when it was really important, the oversight committee, um, you were probably burning the candle at all ends and, and your family sees less of you and your country takes a little bit more, which is why it's good to serve and it's good to get out and go do other things. Can I bring up one other thing that I think? Yeah, can I just say something, Sean, oh, that, that feels like it, I, I like the way you guys are talking about it. It feels like a tour of duty, right? It's not a lifestyle. It's not a, a lifestyle choice. It's like I'm doing a tour of duty. My, my family's in on this service and sacrifice, but then a point reaches where, you know, you're a family first. And we, we reached that point too, Jason, where it just was, it, there yeah, was just yeah, no I more mean, family it, left. It just gets to the point where you're like, all right, I'm not the only person that can do this job. We can pass the baton and the, the, the Republic will survive. Now you'll do it the best, right? You're the, you're probably the best person, but oh, someone no doubt. else can do it, right? No doubt. Yeah. <laughs> can I, but that humility, some... that humility, that <laughs> humility is also important. That humility right, is then. also important to go. I'm not the only person that can do this. I love it. But you know what I think? I think is interesting too. We we you kind of you have to raise money because like I don't know how many uh, I have had very competitive races, and you know I'd have to raise like two and a half million dollars in a in a two-year time period to to run a race and and keep my seat as a you know a republican seat to keep the majority and so you might raise 250 to 300 400 dollars a quarter depending on what time of year it is that has completely changed right now you see some members of congress raising three million dollars a quarter yeah i would i wouldn't raise that in a whole two-year period the amount of money that's now f- f- been flowing into politics is obscene, and it's unique how it's changed too. A lot of times, you know, pl- uh, PACs would give members of Congress who they thought they agreed with, they would help out their campaigns and, and give them campaign contributions. That is really not as prevalent now for fundraising. It's now this people are given. Which is really important. They're giving you know uh, fifteen dollars to one member, twenty dollars to another, and it's when these little contributions that come in in mass that bring in these huge sums of money for members to to run races or to give to their fellow fellow colleagues. But there's less influence now that, that comes from political action committees, and more of America is driving the contributions, which I think is actually a, a, a very positive d- development because again your constituents should fund your races. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. And I, you know, I didn't have to raise as much money for my races out here. You get, you get the Republican nomination in the Utah's third congressional district, and it's pretty hard to lose a race. So, I mean, it's happened, but uh, you have to really work at it to do it. Um, can, I, can I make but, one other point too? I'm, it's, I know it's your, can I just throw one other thing by you, Jason? Sure. That's interesting because uh, when you when you say that it's um, it's a very Republican seat, I told you that mine was very tough. A Democrat had the the seat that I ended up winning for 42 years. In Wisconsin, we have eight congressional seats. 
five of them are Republican, three are Democrat. And my seat of the five Republicans was the least Republican of all of them. I was the ugly stepchild of the Republican Party members of Congress because it was a really, really tough seat. In 2016, the worst performing Republican seat in the state, mine, had the highest vote total for Donald Trump. We went from the worst to the best seat in the state. And it was this phenomenon of Trump reaching out to people in a way that said, listen, I'm, I am going to fight for you. I know you've lost jobs. I, I know you've, you've lost mills. Um, your incomes have fallen. I'm truly going to fight um, to help you bring those good paying jobs back. I'm going to put you first. And, and that idea for people was really, really powerful. Again, a, a Democrat voting district who was then voting 61 or 62 percent for Donald Trump was um, was the kind of one of the biggest swings in um, for sure in our state, but for at least in our region as well. Um, and again, people I think are okay if they if they lose a job in fair competition, they lose a meal because someone's doing it cheaper, they're okay with that. But if they're if they're losing because they're getting cheated, they're they're beated because they're cheated, that's when they get angry. And I think that's what a lot of people felt, and that's why Trump performed so well in in this rural community. Now, the suburbs of Milwaukee, where Jim Sensor Brenner is, and that was the that was the largest Republican area of our state, actually had a you know, a, a cascade of Republican voters that voted Democrat. But it's this kind of political shakeup that's happened around the country and, you know, realignment of how people think about politics and what party represents them now. It's this is a really transformative time, I think, in 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 who's voting for what party and what motivates people to vote. No, I think you're absolutely right. And you know what? We should do a podcast on just Jim Simpson Brenner. A lot of you may not know who this man is, but he is like this amazing individual. And I I was on House Judiciary where he was uh, the chairman and just a jolly, funny, um, crusty uh, personality that that would actually be fun to do a a Sensenbrenner podcast. Uh, and get some people who've worked with them along the way to hear Sensenbrenner stories. He, this, he is he is a he's a congressional gem. He retired um, in in January, but he has so much knowledge of the institution and just he's a really smart man. And again, was great yeah. on judiciary. Yeah, he's yeah. a former chairman himself. R- R- Rachel, um, the state of politics, you know, it, it's so combative. It's so there's so much vitriol. You, you know, you touched on something earlier that I think is right. Most most every member gets along with the, all the other members. And yet, sure, I mean, you get 500 or 435 people together. There's always going to be some some people on the fringes that you're like, oh, my gosh, please. I If I never see that person again, my life will be just fine. But the, the whole of the body really does. It is collegial. They do get along. We go out to dinner and do, do things like that. But. You know, I'm talking to some of the people that are still there in Congress, and it's gotten so personal. And and I guess one of the things I'm so frustrated about is politics is infused into everything. I mean, there are places where you want to go, like a sporting event or, you know, entertainment, and you just be step away from the politics of it. But it's pervasive everywhere, and I don't think that's necessarily healthy. No, I don't think it's healthy. And I think, first of all, within families, I mean, I think that was one of the most distressing things that I saw in the Trump um, era, if you will. And you saw it even in congressional commercials where you had siblings 
cutting ads against their own sibling who was running for Congress. Um, it was horrible. I mean, just horrible. I mean, it, politics really cannot be more important than family. That's for sure. But I do see what you're saying about, you know, whether it's sporting events, you know, school used to be a lot less political for kids. I mean, it just goes on and on. Even in our, the entertainment world is, you know, infused with it. And if I'm being really honest, um, I don't think it's conservatives doing that. I do think it's the left. And I think the reason is that the left is largely secular. And for them, this is their religion. Um, politics is their religion. And for I think for conservatives, um, we're invested in in politics and we care about policy, but we care about it in the context of how it affects our family. Um, we're not trying to create a utopia on Earth. We know that's not possible. We know where, you know, there's only one perfect human being. There's only one perfect place. It's called heaven. And that's all what we're trying to get there um, on Earth to do. But I think when you when you think it's all going to end, when you think there's nothing after and this is it, you can start to get a little too invested in all of this and it becomes a religion. And you've seen it really on overdrive with the pandemic. You really see people, um, you know, treating the vaccine and masking in, 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 in almost a religious sacramental way, the way we look at our faith and um and also you know the pandemic had that added effect i mean if if you don't think there's anything after then 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 the fear factor of dying from covid um it works on you even more because this is it for you um so i don't know i i, I think there's a lot of that sean and i spend many nights um and car rides talking about what are we going to do what is going on with this country because you know Sean got in in 2000, you know, decided to run in 2009 because we thought things were really bad. You know, when Obama was like, we're getting bad when Obama got right. elected in 2008, we were very scared about socialism. We, we, we knew that he was definitely a socialist. We had no doubt in our mind and we were worried about our country. But boy, I would love to go back to 2009, 2010. What we're in right now is so bad and it feels like there's no way out sometimes. And we talk about a lot of times not a revolution in a violent way or, or a secession in a, in a, in a you know, civil right. war way, but an economic and a cultural um, uh, separation, like a, like in a, like a divorce, but in, but an amicable one where I think we're so far apart, Jason, that I don't know if we can find common ground because Marxism, which is what the left has, has embraced. It is communism. It is socialism. That is what they want. It just is not American. It's not American. And so we have, you know, at least, you know, half, maybe less of the American people who are either true believers in that or, or at least are dumb enough to go along with it and be part of it. And then another half who still wants to keep America, America and free. Um, and, and cares about our founding documents and thinks our founders are brilliant and 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 still wants, you know, the American dream and all these things. I think we're just so far apart, Jason. I don't know how we do this other than to, and, and you're kind of seeing it naturally happen now. A lot of people going, I'm out of I'm out of New York. I'm out of California. I'm going to Arizona. I'm going to Florida, going to South Dakota, South Dakota. 
not a great weather place, but having a boom of people going, I care more about just at least letting my family and my kids live free. I can't change the country. I'm going to go to states that let me live the way I want to live. No, I think Utah is like one of the fastest growing states in the nation. And that it's a large part because people want that thing. And, yeah. and you're striking something I think is just right. And it, it, it's manifest, I think, in the in the philosophical difference in approach. And yeah. um, I, I think you're right, because, you know, Republicans, we believe in limited government in self-determination and liberty. But those are not words and philosophies that you hear on the Democratic side of the aisle. It's funny because they, when, when Trump was in office, they talked about fascists and, you know, fascism right. and he's going to do this and he's going to do that. And he didn't really do any of that that they said he was any going to do. But now we are living it with Biden and Harris. And it's exactly what they're doing. They want all government all the time to make those decisions for you, take your money and spend it for you. And uh, but surveillance, a communist style surveillance snitch culture. That's what we're living under. They want to control everything. They want to force people to do what they want to do or else you're going to be banned from society. You're not going to be able to go to a restaurant. You can't go on a plane. I mean, Fauci said two weeks ago. You know, we need to look at, like, if you're not vaccinated, you can't get on a plane. I mean, this is controlling our movement. Yeah. Um, or, it's just crazy. It is. John, what's your take on it? Well, so I do you ever see the, the, the car with the bumper sticker on it? It's probably a Volvo or a um, other liberal-esque Subaru. Subaru, <laughs> thank be you. a Subaru, yeah. That, that, with all the religious <laughs> symbols that spell out the word coexist. Yeah. You ever see that, right? Yeah. There is nothing about coexisting with the leftist liberals they don't want to coexist with us they want to overtake us they want to destroy us they don't want to let you you know practice your faith and and live a limited government lifestyle family first vision in utah they want they want to impose their belief whether it's you know global warming uh you know equity not equality crt they want to impose all of their views on on you in utah and me in wisconsin and people in texas they don't want to coexist with us they want to impose on us and um i think that's one of their big lies and unless we realize that and start to push back and fight back um they're going to do it and i think there's there's not enough conservatives again because we're we're with our families right we work and we raise our families and you go to baseball and soccer and there's a lot of things that we have going on in our life outside of politics but if we don't start to engage in politics and fight for freedom and liberty and, and fight for the country I think we lose it because they're fighting every single day. This is their, as Rachel said, this is their religion. This is their devotion. But this is where Sean and I are divided, Jason. I just think that like I'm, 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 I'm a born optimist, but I have to tell you, I feel more like a pessimist. I'm starting to lose faith in politics and the power of politics to fix what I think is wrong with America. I'm almost getting to the point where I'm like, I'm just going to take care of my little world, my little family. I'm going to move to a town that's conservative. I'm going to, you know, just take care of this little space and hope they don't come for me because I, I and I know they want to, but they're coming. But I, just, I just, it feels so much. They, they've taken over so much, many yeah. um, institutions and government that I just, I just don't know what the answer is. Yeah. I think there's going to be a, a continued boom in rural America where people want a little space, little elbow room. They actually yep. will love their, they want, they want to like and love and, and 
and be part of a community. And uh, it, it, I guess one of the big eye openers that I had when I was in Congress is it finally came to the realization that, you know, those that are preaching the most tolerance are the least tolerant among us. Yes. There was no room for somebody who had a view other than theirs. And yet their accusation back to me was that I was the one that was intolerant and I was racist and I was this, that, and the other. And like, wait a sec, I, what, (laughs) you know, it just made no sense. But I think that's where, and I think that's where America is. And, you know, I, I wish I could just wave a, a magic uh, baton and whatnot, but I think our country has is, is, is gotten worse in, in many ways. It's still the greatest country on the face of the planet, bar none, uh, but we have to make sure that this younger generation, uh, you know, understands what freedom and liberty and self-determination is all about because... I'm like you, Sean. I have a I have a libertarian streak in me as well, and I, I think that is, I think there's hope for that. I think uh, I think when you start to actually talk to young people about what they believe, I always loved. I'd go into these uh, schools, and I'd play a little game where I'd separate the class, usually like a fourth grade class, and we'd put a make a house, and then there'd be a senate, and we I'd get you know some kid who'd come up and be the president, and. And uh, inevitably, we would go through this exercise of having them do a bill and who should pay for it. And you go through that exercise, and you know what? Every time I did it in inner city Boston, I've done it in all kinds of places. They're very conservative, actually, when you really think through how the issues flow. <laughs> it's so fun. Pre- before all the indoctrination, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, yeah, they really free. are. But it's such a great point, Jason, because we're born free. We're born. Our hearts are made for freedom. Um, you know, that's free will. That's that's how we're made. We we you know, to be enslaved, to be controlled. Uh, this is an evil force. Right. Yeah. Um, but we are our hearts are made for freedom. And that includes economic freedom. And so it doesn't surprise me that those children have that react that their natural inclination is towards freedom. But what happens is we've ceded so much territory, including the education territory um, that whole institution has been captured oh. by the left. And that's and, and that's what's hurting us. And, and these kids who grow up now with all these ideas are going to be ruling us. I actually I think, think we've made progress on school choice with the whole covid situation. I think uh, the case for stu- school choices is, is better than ever. All right. We're going to run out of time. True. The Internet only has so much space. What I really, really <laughs> want to do is uh, I want to kind of get to know you a little bit better. And so I have these rapid questions and I don't care how many kids you have or how many logs you've actually rolled. You're not totally prepared for this, but I'd like to go through it anyway, if that's OK with you. All right. You got it. All right. All right. So I, and I'm going to ask you each individually. Okay. So Rachel, what's the ideal time to go to bed? Um, around midnight. That's tough when you're doing Fox and friends. Woo. It, it hurts on the weekends. <laughs> yeah. It hurts on the weekends. Uh, Sean, what's the ideal time to go to bed? 930, 10. No. Good luck with all those kids. Nine thirty, right. ten. There's no way that's happening. But ideal. You said ideal. I did. I did. Ideal. All right. Um, uh, Rachel, what is uh, Sean's most embarrassing moment? Uh, having to sing at Michael Jackson's studio um, when we were on the Real World uh, on, on the Road Rules Challenge. That was one of our um, 
adventures that we had to do, one of the things we had, one of our challenges. And I thought I sang bad until I heard Sean sing. And he was in a production studio with all these people. And I can tell it was just awful for him. It was horrible. Yeah, there's Don't no getting out of that one. All the cameras are rolling. Yeah, it was horrible. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. I can't sing or dance, uh, Jason. So, yeah, yeah, I kind of figured that when I met you. I thought, yeah, this no, guy. No rhythm. <laughs> he's, he's just not... I, He's just not going to be a dancer or yeah, singer. <laughs> um, I figured that out. All right, uh, Sean, uh, what is Rachel's best moment? Um, listen, I think her best moments are on on Fox and Friends. I think that she um, sh- she kind of tells things the way she sees it, and I think it's refreshing. Um, and I think she has struck a chord with a lot of people um, as she has a, a platform with Pete and Will um, in the morning to to go out and share her perspective and view. And I think she's a she's a ray of sunshine as I have a cup of coffee in the morning. I enjoy no, watching great. her. I think that's when she's Don't lie. Time. You're sleeping while I'm doing my show, Sean. That's, that's such a lie. I, 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 go, I can go back. I record it so I can go back and watch from the, from the beginning. She just skips over the Will part and the Pete part. She just hears the Rachel. He just listens and watches the Rachel yeah. part. <laughs> oh, that's you can do, you can do the four hours that. weekend <laughs> Fox and Friends in like an hour if you just do the Rachel yeah. part. <laughs> if you just forward through it. <laughs> All right, um, uh, Sean, uh, um, you're up again. Uh, when is the last time you made the bed, the whole bed, and nothing but the bed? Oh, I will say Monday morning. Is that true, Rachel? Does he really make the bed? He, if told, yes. It's not no. his inclination, I would say that. No, I th- when Rachel's going to get mad that I didn't make it, and I yeah. could have made it, I'll <laughs> go up and make it without being asked. So that Monday morning, I'm like, uh, I probably could have made this. She's downstairs. We're still like, yeah. So yes, Monday morning, Jason. But thank you for asking that question. Because if you'd asked before Monday, it might have been like, I can't remember when the last Well, time I was only going to ask was. if Rachel was on the phone too. So that's good. Um, all right, uh, Sean, what is Rachel's hidden talent? Um, it's not that hidden, but she is a, an amazing cook. She is, she's fantastic. She can't bake anything, but she does, she does great dinners, great meals. All right. Thanks, um, honey. Okay. And so Rachel, what is Sean's hidden talent? I mean, we know he can roll logs. We know he's good in politics. Um, we know he's a good <laughs> he is, dad, but a- like what talent does he have that nobody knows about? You know what? He is an amazing water ski instructor. So all of our kids can water ski. Because Sean, very patiently, every summer, for hours on end, um, will drive around the, the little bay by our lake, and he will teach those kids how to water ski, and it's it's a beautiful thing. That's nice. But Jason, t- teaching them how to drive, I am not patient. They hate me as a driver. <laughs> yeah, no, they <laughs> all do not. They all hate being taught to drive by Sean. <laughs> right. I'm, 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 I'm kind of mean. I'm like, bro, you're going to kill us. No. <laughs> Well, that's good because you got to you got it got a bunch of them. You got to teach along that way. So, yeah. Um, all right. So, Rachel, what can Sean not do to save his life? Sing. Oh, what can Sean? Okay, besides he, I, we know he okay, can't well, sing, but what else can he not do? He can't cook. It's. I mean, when I have to go away, and are you sure that's not charge. a ruse? Because I got to tell no. you a story. Look, when I first got married, my wife Julie and I. I couldn't cook, you know, and that's what I told her. And then one one morning she caught me making eggs, cracking eggs with one hand. And um, she's like, what are you Liar. doing? And I said, 
all right, I can't make eggs. And then she, she never believed, she still doesn't believe me that I can't cook, but it was always in my best interest to let her know that I can't cook because she's actually a good cook. And you, you see my body, <laughs> you can tell that I eat a well, lot. So if the, kids, if the kids are the judge, they will tell you that they can't wait for me to come home. They do not like anything he makes. Then what he'll do too is he'll make like industrial quantities of this not so tasty dish. So they all have to have it for multiple days in a row, which I would never do. Um, he's just not, he's not a good cook. All right. Well, I, I don't we all buy that. Nobody's kids, the judges are not arguing with that, with that answer. The kids, the kids complain. I listen, I can I have a special hot dish that I do and I, and I can make chicken <laughs> and I make a lot of it. So we eat it for days and they do. complain. <laughs> I think it actually he did learn how to make tasty. chicken. I'm going to give you that. But it took you a long time to figure that out, Sean. I had soggy chicken, burnt chicken, and then finally I got chicken. Yeah, well, I figured out that going yeah. to Popeye's was a whole lot better and easier. Uh, that way chick- better chick- idea. Chick-fil-A, Popeye's, and, and uh, KFC, and then repeat. And you got more chicken than you can possibly get through. So. That sounds frozen, good. Frozen pizza is a classic for me. I'm like, okay, pizza again, kids. You don't want you don't want <laughs> a hot dish? It's pizza. Have those Tostino's pizzas oh yeah and then you t- what you do is you or, take tomato paste and you spread it on top then you put it in the oven that's the way to Ooh, that's like an interesting idea i hadn't thought about I'll, that i'll throw a little extra cheese on too because they, they skimp on the cheese and i'm from wisconsin so I, I do my cheese but also mac and cheese too i'll do mac and cheese as a, as a classic dad cook as well when rachel's gone all right that's good yeah. that's good all right couple more um rachel first concert you ever attended uh that would be uh you too uh what must have been rattling hum they did they well they yeah they actually filmed with a helicopter for their big you know i think it was for their music video if not a movie i don't know but yeah i was i got to go with my i'll never forget because i got to go with my brothers who were in college at arizona state so it was at sun devil stadium and i was still in high school so it was kind of like my first experience of like what it could be like in college and after that, I was like, I can't wait to go to college. Yeah. Well, yeah, if you're going to go to a YouTube concert, YouTube concert yeah. every weekend, uh, why not? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sean, first concert you attended. So my brother was a huge and still is a huge Tina Turner fan. So I had to go see Tina Turner um, live in concert. Go. Come on. She's had an to. icon. <laughs> you should catch that. I had to go. <laughs> I had to go to Tina Turner. Um, and listen, still, he's like, he's like 53 and still loves Tina Turner. So. Uh, what would, he, what would you have chosen, though? You probably would have chosen to go to Poison, right? You see, I love Poison. I love Poison <laughs> and Meatloaf. Meat, I love Meatloaf. He's classic. Meatloaf is a fave, and so is Poison. To which Rachel doesn't like Meatloaf or Poison. So um, I always get booed with my Poison picks, which uh, sometimes no, you, Poison's not very age-appropriate for little kids. I've, yeah, <laughs> it's not. It's totally not. You probably would have gone to the Wiggles. I, that's what I would have, you know, something like that. <laughs> would have said that was your first concert. Right. No. But Poison is sort of the opposite of the Wiggles. So. Uh, yes. For sure. <laughs> I, you know, for a long time, I had convinced my kids and my kids' friends that I was in the Wiggles. And and they would look at me and I'd say, yeah, I was actually in the Wiggles. And, um, yeah, the guy with the purple shirt. And then we'd turn on a clip real quick, and I'd turn it off real quick, and they'd look at me like, was that really you? And I'd say, oh, yeah, that was me. I'm older now. I've retired from the band, but I used to be in the Wiggles. Uh, the things you do as a parent. Uh, but, yeah, that's that's what I did. Okay, um, last question. 
Rachel, what was your first job? Was it just the babysitting or when did you, when did you actually like get a paycheck from somebody else? Okay. So beyond, besides babysitting, my first job was working for morale, welfare and recreation at the Air Force Base. Um, At uh, uh, what Air Force Base was that? It was in California where the... um, in Bakersfield, in in, uh, in McCarthy's That's a legit district, job. Edwards yeah. Edwards Air Force Base. So I worked in the in an office, you know, going through files and doing all kinds of stuff, and uh, that's where I worked. So I worked on the Air Force Base. They had like a summer program for for kids to to work. Sean, first job. So uh, so I so when I was young, I would fill in like they needed someone to log roll on a show. So I'd be like in eighth grade that had me come log roll to fill in. But my first real job, I, I bagged groceries at the IGA in Hayward and loved it. And, and these people would come through with these massive shopping carts like I do right now and get all these groceries. And I'll go home to my mom and go, mom, because she was like really like into health food. So we'd like we'd have grain and carrots and like lettuce at my house and like nori rolls with seaweed and stuff. And I'm like, why don't you go to IGA and get like, the carts of food Lucky like everything else. Yes. hundred um, percent. My fond memories of, of bagging groceries and stocking shelves. Yeah. You Which, know, by the way, I, when, I, that, when I hired in Congress, Jason, I would always ask people, like, I didn't like the trust fund kids. I wanted people who had worked. Did you have yeah. a job? Did you have to make it yourself? Did you have to have some grit and fortitude? Those are the kids I always wanted to hire as opposed to the kids who were like, had life easy. I want someone who is a fancy internships and things like that were never, they never turned out to be the best employees. No, I think that's right. I think the common denominators kind of done this podcast and we dive into people's background. They started working and pretty, pretty young, but they learned to enjoy it and they learned to work hard and they learned the value of kind of reporting to somebody else and, um, and, and, and earning their own money. And the other common denominator um you know along the way is a lot of these people have all been engaged in sports whether it's an individual sport or a team sport but they've learned the value of winning and losing and practicing and doing those things you need to do it it's kind of rare to none that i actually find somebody who doesn't have sort of that one-two punch of 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 those types of skills and you know what it's also parents who who care and help and sacrifice. I don't know how many times my parents went to a soccer game on a Saturday, and I'm sure that they had a lot of other things to do other than sitting under the hot Arizona sun, you know, watching me play soccer when it's 105 degrees outside. But, um, you know, parents, parents do those things and it makes a difference. And I, I think one of the metrics when people study our generation and before and beyond and everything else, they're going to see this this uh, difference between families that were raised with two parents as opposed to uh, single parent households. Now, wonderful kids, wonderful families, just a lot harder, more difficult to do it. And you got a lot of incredible kids that that uh, that are that come out of that. But if you're creating the best case scenario, I just think you have this this coddling with both of you know with two parents. 
that's just my take on it. So it, it's a, it's a two person job. It's hard. Um, and you know, I, I agree. Our, our, our wives saw that when we were going. Yeah, that's, Congress. I mean, that's yeah. kind of why we needed to get out of Congress. Right, Sean? Exactly. It's, it's like <laughs> it's a little much for one person. Yeah, no, I got the greatest respect for these, yeah. particularly single moms trying to do all they all they can, everything they get. It's it's an amazing what they can do. And but it, boy, it's, uh, it, you know. I just think that we're going to look back at this society and say, wow, we had too much of this, that, or the other. But you, you all are both an inspiration to us because you got a wonderful, beautiful family. I'm sure you have your heartaches and challenges and problems like everybody else. But you got such a positive, bright spirit and and uh, approach to life. And I think the, the proper role and balance of government and uh, it's a joy to get to know you or work with you and, and hear your perspectives. And so can't thank uh, Sean and Rachel, the two of you uh, for joining us uh, here on the Jason in the house podcast. Thanks for Jason, having us. Thanks on. for having us. Yeah, that's wonderful. And love watching you when you're filling in for Hannity or judge Janine, you do an awesome job. And we all look up to you uh, from those of us who came after you in the house at the great job you're doing fighting for the American dream brother. Thank you. Oh, thank you both. I can't wait to see you again uh, soon in person. So thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Jason and the house podcast. There's more podcasts over at foxnewspodcast.com, foxnewspodcast.com. Hoping you can rate it, review it, like it, subscribe to this podcast, and we'll be back with more next week. I'm Jason Chaffetz. This has been Jason in the house. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.